Hello, and welcome to episode 86 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my interview with Tracy Mears and Arthur Reiser in just a moment, but first the news. Last week, a bipartisan group of lawmakers announced the beginning of the push to enact the recommendations of the Joint Task Force on Jail and Pretrial Incarceration. This could be a game-changer in terms of pretrial incarceration in Michigan, where one of the top five causes of incarceration is driver's license suspensions unrelated to public safety. In other words, a lot of people in Michigan get arrested because their driver's licenses got suspended because of an accumulation of fines and fees. And since they still had to go to work, and because there's very little reliable public transportation in many areas of the state, they drove to work, got stopped, and got arrested. We can only hope that the recommendations of the task force will quickly make their way through our legislature and become law. Safe and Just Michigan, my place of employment, is hosting another webinar, The Business Case for Criminal Justice Reform, on the 29th at noon. This should be a good one as we have some impacted business people and some national experts on the economy to talk about the importance of including formerly incarcerated people to economic success. I'll include the links in the show notes, but I hope you will join us. Finally, Kate Summers, who has long been doing our Instagram and Facebook, is about to embark on a new journey in her life. We'll be sad to lose her, but she's been, been she's been an incredible contrib- contributor to the pop to the production and promotion of the podcast over the last year. We'll miss her a great deal, and I hope everyone will take a second to send her a thank you message and wish her well. We're planning to do a few more interviews on Patreon before she goes, but thanks for everything, Kate. Okay, let's get to my interview with Tracy Mears and Arthur Reiser. Tracy Mears is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law and founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. She is a nationally recognized expert on policing and urban communities who has worked extensively with the federal government, including being a member of President Barack Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. In 2019, Mears was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Before joining the faculty at Yale, she was a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Arthur Reiser is the director Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties and a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. He heads the Institute's programs dealing with a variety of issues relating to crime, policing, intelligence, and privacy. He's also a former police officer, prosecutor, and somehow also spent 21 years in the military. Uh, during his military career, he was awarded the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Meritorious Service, and Iraq Campaign Medals. Welcome to the, De- the Decarceration Nation podcast, Tracy and Arthur. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's not so, every day you get to do a podcast with one of your intellectual idols. I'm pretty excited. Oh, man. Uh, I assume that's a, that you're talking about the person I'm interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Tracy knows I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fanboy of her work, so yeah. no surprise to her. Uh, so oh, we're really we're, thrilled to be here. Yeah, so we're here today to talk about your Square One project paper called The Radical Notion of the Presumption of Innocence. But I always ask the same first question. How did you both get from where you started doing work uh, to where you're working on criminal justice issues now? Arthur, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I, you know, I, I've always wanted to work in the criminal justice field, um, really since I 
kind of gave up the idea that I was going to be an airline pilot when I got sick flying when I was a little kid. I that but that has changed dramatically, obviously throughout my career. I the reason that I served time as a police officer is because I thought it would give me a better perspective when I ultimately became a prosecutor, which is what I always really wanted to do. I wanted to. Um, you know, protect and serve. And I wanted to do that in a courtroom and ensure that uh, we had a, uh, a more just um, system. But that, you know, fundamentally changed the longer that I worked um, in, in the criminal justice field. I, I'm, I'm obviously proud of my service. I'm, I think I did a good job. But you start to, um, uh, it starts to weigh on you uh, when you are putting individuals in prison, um, sometimes for life. Uh, sentences, depending on on the crime. And so when I started to actually do research and write on these topics as a professor and then at a think tank, and then, you know, I'm also uh, working on my PhD uh, at Oxford, I'm doing field research. I, I learned that if you want to change the world, you want to make the world a, a more just place, sure, you can do it with a badge and sure you can do it with, with a law degree as a defense attorney or a prosecutor. But ultimately, I wanted to change policy um, and I wanted to actually create a more, you know, a fair place for my kids to grow up. I would say that my path is a little bit more circuitous uh, than Arthur's. I was an engineer, undergrad, structural design engineering. Um, I went to law school a bit of on a bit of a lark um, because I didn't want to take biology class my senior year in college, um, which was required in order to go to medical school. My view was, as an engineering major, I had already had five semesters of calculus and physics and chemistry. I didn't feel like I needed to do any more. So <laughs> I went to law school, and um, I really thought I was going to be an intellectual property lawyer. I really had no serious interest in the criminal legal system. Um, but one of my professors when I was in law school asked me if I had ever seriously thought about being an academic, and the answer to that question was no. And then as I started to think about the kinds of questions I was interested in, I kept coming back to um, the community surrounding the University of Chicago. The south side of Chicago was very poor um, and um, under-invested in um, my mentor at the time, William Julius Wilson, had written a book called The Truly Disadvantaged. And crime rates and violence rates were super high at the time. This was in the mid-90s. And so I just started to think about what would it mean to be a legal academic who integrated questions and theories of sociology and psychology into uh, the process of thinking about community revitalization. Um, and that lead to thinking about drug law enforcement, prosecution, how policing worked, how people come to conclusions about the fairness of legal authority. So I kind of came into these questions from a fundamentally um, academic perspective, but definitely influenced by the life I was living at the time in Chicago, but also you know, the history of my own family's involvement in deep care um, for the communities in which they live. 
Um, you know, both of you are experts in policing. And while we're going to be talking a lot about pretrial incarceration, I think it would be crazy at the current moment not to ask you both kind of what your feelings have been over, you know, the little over a little over more than a month uh, since uh, George Floyd's uh, killing. Do you all have kind of general thoughts or specific thoughts about what's been going on in the movement to both address these problems and policing? Uh, well, it's pretty personal for me. And as you noted um, at the outset, I had the honor of serving on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing um, in 2015, uh, which he convened after the killings of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City. Um, you know, that task force of 11 people put together 59 recommendations, many of which at the time were considered to be somewhat leading edge. And now, five years later, um, you know, some of those recommendations are criticized as being, quote unquote, reformers, reforms, and not going far enough, um, weren't, haven't really been um pushed by the current administration. There hasn't been serious investment in a lot of those recommendations. Um, and I will say because of that, a few years ago, in 2017, I wrote a piece in the Boston Review in which I argued that policing as we know it must be abolished before it can be transformed. And what I meant was that we just needed to fundamentally rethink the project of public safety and how the state delivers it. Um, that means changing the shape of policing, which is what I think you're hearing right now um, from calls in the streets, but also, you know, the ways in which the state support supports um, the, its most vulnerable communities. You know, many of the people that we call essential workers are living in neighborhoods that are the hardest hit by this pandemic. And it is in part because we do not approach public safety in the way uh, that we should. So those are some of the things I've been thinking about lately. Uh, and just to follow up yeah, real quickly so, uh, before, sure. just uh, just when you say we don't approach public safety the way that we should, do you, could you could yeah. you be a little bit more specific about what you envision? Yeah, I can. Um, so I think it is important to think about public safety as a set of public goods to which everyone is entitled, and the way that you would provide people with those public goods can't just be the face of the state that is an armed first responder, right? So in that world, um, decent housing and a good education and public health and clean water are all parts of public safety because people, when they think about being safe, obviously want to be safe from one another. Um, you know, you think about interpersonal violence, but they also want to be secure from government overreach. And I think one of the major problems we see today is that for so many of these communities, their needs are met by the arm of the state that is, <laughs> that is forceful, right? Without thinking about all of these other important public goods that I think are critical to public safety. Um, you know, I, there's a, a document on the Justice Collaboratory website that talks about this, reimagining public safety. Um, you need to think about preventing harm in all of its manifestations. Um, and you also have to lead with the truth. That's the other reason why people are in the streets right now. Uh, 
these state agencies need to acknowledge the role they played historically and today in uh, discrimination and, and wrong, wrongdoing. Um, it starts there with acknowledgement of harm. Yeah, so I uh, very sadly um, kind of, my first reaction was almost, I told you so. Uh, I have been writing for a long time about the dangerous culture within policing. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that the vast majority of cops are good people try and do good work. But, you know, an example that I use a, a lot is, you know, if, if we were trying to describe the model soldier, nobody would refer to the 1960s and 1970s um, Vietnam um, soldier, not because they weren't any less brave or serve their country, but because there was a culture problem in the military that everybody recognized. And we fundamentally changed the way that the military operates um, from the ground up. The, the way that the military looks in the 60s to the way that it looks um, now is fundamentally different. But for some reason, we're so unwilling to do that when it comes to police work. So I think that, uh, you know, People very often say, oh yeah, but it's only a few bad apples. And my response is, yeah, but finish the adage. A few bad apples <laughs> ruins the barrel. And if you are putting in good cops <clears throat> who witness cops being evil and bad and abusing their power, guess what? You just corrupted those cops. And the entire system is almost established to perpetuate that environment and you know all the solutions that we've that we've come up with to try to change police culture we know from other models don't really work you're not going to police chief your way out of this mess you're not going to you know hire a bunch of cops with bachelor's degrees and expect poof we now have a better culture we have to fundamentally change um the core of, of policing in this country from Someone who you know goes out there and is an enforcer and uh, and and move into a world where we look for cops that are helpers. And mm -hmm. you know when people talk about defunding the police, you know I, I I sometimes get frustrated because I'm like, okay, well then what? What do you want to do? But there are models that work. We could uh, focus more on um, exactly what what uh, Tracy was just talking about of of putting tools into people's hands that are equipped to do that type of work, social work, um, individuals that are that specialize in, in how to handle juveniles, because cops truly have one ultimate tool, and that tool is a hammer. And that is okay in some circumstances, but it should be a very limited circumstance. Right. And we have kind of developed this world um, and to seem okay with it. And listen, I, I'm on the right, okay? I'm a center writer, I'm a proud libertarian, and it drives me absolute bananas that the bedrock of my ideology is supposed to be a limited government. But for some reason, we just forget all of that when it comes to the one place that is the most intrusive uh, 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 environment, which is handcuffs. And for some reason, we just forget about um, how that looks. And I'm also a father of two brown boys. My my, my kids are, are multicultured. And the fact that they see the world so fundamentally different than I do scares me. And it makes me sad. Um, and I, I, I see this thing happening with George Floyd and I'm watching this for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And the only thing I think about is that could be my kid. And why the, sorry, I was going to say the F word. Why, why, <laughs> Why? Why would my interaction be so different? I know for a fact. I'm not. I'm not here trying to legalize, um, uh, you know, 
counterfeiting, but why would my interaction so lo look so differently as a white guy? Because I know it would. I know that it would be presumed um, that it was an accident for me. And why do we have to resort to violent arrests? Um, and by the way, uh, which leads beautifully into the topic that we're talking yeah. about is why, why are people so uh, crazy about not going to jail? Because jail is hell. And once we recognize that you are fundamentally destroying someone's life with those handcuffs, then everything becomes a little clearer on what comes next. That's a great answer and a good lead in. Uh, just as a side note, you wouldn't be the first person to curse on the podcast. The first person was actually uh, Rachel Rollins, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say Vinny. <laughs> no, no, he actually went through fine. Uh so, Arthur, I also know that you uh, recently wrote a piece about conservatives and race. Can you talk about that for a few seconds before we jump right into the paper? Yeah, I'm, I'm just tired of conservatives acting like this is not our issue. We should be leading the way on this issue. We should be, we, we're, we're supposed to be the ones for procedural due process. Why do we lose it over this? And why are we so, what happened to the conservative movement where we just pretend that science and that doesn't matter anymore? I mean, my God, when I was a kid, conservatives were the grownups in the room. Um, and now we just, if some, we don't like something, we just pretend that it doesn't exist. Oh, we don't like uh, global warming because it affects certain business models. Oh, there's no such thing. And we, we, we just move that, that, that same theory on to other uh, issues that we don't like. If it makes us uncomfortable, we just deny it, its existence. So I, I, I believe that on the right, um, you know, that we should be actively thinking about uh, how we can, uh, you know, do something about the racial inequalities in this country. I, I, I do not think there are, you know, dark rooms um, with people twilling their fingers together saying, oh, how can we keep the black man down? I mean, I'm sure it probably does happen, but it doesn't mean that it's any less of an impact on these communities. And, you know, going back to the, the topic of policing, for God's sakes, the last thing that the African uh, American community wants is more interactions with police. So stop offering that as your solution, because it's not a solution. Um, we have seen that just make things worse, exasperate every problem we have in the criminal justice system. And so both of you somehow got involved with the Square One Project and decided to talk about pretrial incarceration. How did you all come to the Square One Project? I got an email from Bruce Western, and we talked about this idea of reimagining justice from square one and the people who would be around the table. And it sounded pretty interesting. Um, so I signed up. Same. I, Bruce uh, contacted me and I knew him and I was, it was like a, a movie star calling me because um, <laughs> I, I absolutely just, I read, I devour everything he writes. Um, and then I saw Jeremy Travis was on, you know, the guy that, you know, basically invented the idea of reentry from a, a, yeah. a government, government's perspective. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, I could not, I was so honored, um, to be part of it. So I was invited and I jumped at the opportunity. So the paper starts with a disturbing quote about the Cook County jail in Illinois, which is strangely enough, become one of the epicenters of the COVID crisis. And the first paper uh, paragraph of your paper suggests that any discussion of pretrial detention must acknowledge that we subject citizens presumed innocent of the crimes with which they are charged so th to something that resembles death. Could you all uh, talk about starting uh, why you chose to start in such a, you know, almost apocalyptic place? Well, it was Tracy's idea, so I'll let her answer that. <laughs> 
Well, I think that it goes back to what Arthur was saying about the relationship between um, the ways in which many people enter the criminal legal system, you know, the forcible arrest point. There's a, a sense in which people downplay the fact that uh, of forcible arrest, that it's temporary, it's, it's not that intrusive. Even the Supreme Court in Terry versus Ohio seemed to suggest that the stop and a frisk was not particularly intrusive. It didn't last very long. You know, it's just a touching of a person's out, a body through their outer clothing and the like. But um, we know that those kinds of interactions that uh, disproportionately black and brown people have with police actually are devastating uh, and lead to trauma. And those are compared to being in jail, um, relatively minor intrusion. So we wanted to make sure that we set the stage for our argument for people to understand that jail in any context is punishment and it's unavoidable to that that reality is unavoidable and that juxtaposition of that reality to the fact that so many people are there without ever having had their offense adjudicated is the starting point for us. We all grew up being taught that people were innocent until proven guilty, but I think anyone who's been through the system, and I certainly have, will tell you a very different story. How did we get from where innocence was kind of a bedrock principle, as you all call it, to where there is a presumption of detention, as you suggest on the paper? Hmm. Uh, through get there, Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, through fear-mongering and through um, a, a very silent, slow... Um, creep. I mean, it's mission creep at its finest. And, you know, if you go back to our, our fundamentals, our back to our, our, our founding, um, you know, and it's in vogue right now to, to, to poo-poo anything from the founding fathers. I don't fall into that camp. You know, we quote Adams in our paper, and I think it's really relevant, so I'm going to do it here if you don't mind. Uh, and, you know, people almost always quote Adams in the way where they say, it is important, uh, it is more important for the innocent to be protected than guilt to be punished. And that's where they stop. And that's the famous line that goes back um, to, you know, uh, to England and such. But Adams goes on and he says, for guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that it cannot be punished. But if innocence itself is brought to bar and condemned, perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil, it is immaterial. For innocence itself is no protection. And if such an idea as were to take hold in the mind of the citizen, that would be the end of security whatsoever. And what Adams is saying is, if you not protect innocence at its utmost, at, at, at the very essence of what the word innocence means, then you actually start to crumble your own society. The ground starts to shake and the ground starts to break. And that is where we are at now. But I want to go back. You asked me where this came from. That is where, that's the starting point. It's really important that we understand the starting point. And we have very slowly through fear, and by the way, I am a big believer that every terrible policy idea in this country comes from fear. Um, if you look at, you know, how we got there, it was slowly, um, but it was also, you know, not hidden. I mean, every American child learns about the presumption of innocence as a, as a bedrock principle, but we also learn about lynching and how we right. just, you just, you know, absolutely, um, 
for, you know, forgot um, and for years didn't even try to punish um, people who stripped innocence away from individuals. We, you know, we enslaved people up to the Civil War and then did it through you know, other legal means after um, the Civil War. We did it during the Japanese internment. So this is not something that happened in, in closets. And what Tracy was saying, I think, is it's spot on, is that, you know, the Supreme Court has, has acted like this wasn't a big deal. You know why? Because they didn't go through it. And when you are the ones that get handcuffs put on you, then you have a fundamentally different idea. Or when you see um, handcuffs get on you, I just did a a, a a sit down with an individual who helped create the Crips. You know, the the, the gang um, that used to basically run L.A. And one of the things that they asked him was, "What is your first interaction that you remember with the police?" And he said, "Is when they were kidnapping my uncle." Um, and I have no idea what his uncle did. I have no idea if it was a good arrest, bad arrest. But from a, a 10-year-old's perspective, that is what he witnessed and that is what he felt. Um, mm-hmm. And that is how we got to where we are. Can I just add a couple of things, which is to say, Ash, would you say, how did we get here as if, you know, we used to be fully committed to this principle? That's a fair now, point. <laughs> we're not. Um, When you're listening to what Arthur is saying, I hope the listeners are paying attention to for the fact that for broad swaths of people who are never really committed to this principle ever. So there's that problem. And then there's also, but there is also the reality that over time, the country has become kind of obsessed with the idea of crime prevention. Um, in a way that was not always true. And so what we didn't have, you know, during, um, you know, the period of time when Black people were lynched and um, certain immigrant populations were detained without um, any kind of due process, we didn't have a kind of theory of of the system that allowed explicitly legally allowed the system to detain people considered dangerous and in which the system gave its imprimatur to do that. And, and, you know, we have a particular argument uh, against that phenomenon. Those two things go together, right? What there's the large groups of people, we were never committed to this principle, but now we have a system that actually legitimizes the possibility of holding people prior to trial who have not been adjudicated on some very flim-flam finding that they might be dangerous. We are arguing against both of those things in, in our piece. Yeah, I think that was a really good point when I said we all grew up, that obviously I, I should have been thinking about who the we were. <laughs> that is very true. It's not necessarily all the way true all the way through history. Obviously not. Uh, your paper suggests that we should presume everyone has a right to liberty. Uh, I was listening to uh, Ken Burns the other day in an old clip ta- interviewing James Baldwin. And uh, since it's relevant to your paper, I'm going to ask the same question he asked uh, James Baldwin. What does liberty mean to each of you? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I, yeah, I would start by saying um, that, you know, to, to me, liberty is, uh, you know, the, the, the right to opportunity. Um, 
No, it's the American dream. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm cheesy. I still believe in the American dream. I still think that, you know, this is a tree that stands for something. We are um, in many ways still the city on the top of the hill. And I think that we should reflect that in everything that we do, especially to our own citizens. You know, and what Gandhi said is that a civilization will be judged by how we treat its weakest, least fortunate citizen. Um, and to me, uh, liberty is ensuring that Everyone has as fair a shake as possible. Um, I, I, I just find it incredible that we have disinherited a generation of Americans, mostly um, black and brown from the American dream, and then act surprised that they don't want to participate. So liberty to me is, is a place where uh, is, is, is obviously freedom from the state, you know, free to do as you will. And I can start talking about my libertarian um, stuff credentials at this point. But um, in, in reality, it's the, the the opportunity to to you know to, to live your best life um, and raise your children uh, and 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 that they had a better cut um, than you did or at least had the opportunity for one. I don't have a lot to add except to say um, at at its base for me liberty is freedom from fear and for too many people especially right now I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation many people of color are afraid of all kinds of things that they ought not be afraid of. They ought not be afraid that um, an officer, an agent of the state who is sworn to protect and serve them would hurt them. They ought not be afraid that of you know, sitting in front of a, a neighbor's house for a few minutes because they're getting their things together or waiting for a child to come outside. They ought not be afraid that some other person will see them and call the police, right? They ought not be afraid that if they take their child to school, that the teacher will treat their child poorly because of the color of their skin. They ought not be afraid of um, the possibility <laughs> of having to work twice as hard to get half as much as my grandmother said. So, you know, I think Arthur put it very well when he was talking about opportunity. And I guess the reason why I'm not um, a libertarian, as I understand it, is I believe that the state has an obligation to create the conditions for that opportunity, especially in a context, in a world, given the history that we've just talked about, right? I just read an article today um, in the New York Times Magazine in which Nicole Hannah-Jones reminded us that the only people who got financial remuneration um, from the federal government after the Civil War were former slaveholders in Washington, D.C. Um, to compensate them from lost property. Formerly right. enslaved people did not get that. Like, what are we talking about here? So what does it mean to talk about opportunity when we've yeah. had government-sponsored deprivation of entire communities for generations? Liberty to me means preparing that. Yeah. Can I add one little thing to that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's also helpful sometimes for me to define things by what it's not. Um, and, and what it's not is the fact that there are 5,000, just federal, right? 5,000 criminal laws. Um, these are opportunities for the government to put you in jail. And then when you look at regulations that can be criminally enforced, here's the number. This is so outrageous 
that I hope your listeners hear this and Google it because it's true. The number of regulations that can put you in jail ranges from 10,000 to 300,000 because there's so many that we actually count, count them. That is outrageous. We are in just, we just invent ways to mess with people in this country. And you know who gets the, the brunt of it? Poor people, communities of color. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's not something of the past. I, 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 get, I, get, I get really frustrated when people talk about all of this stuff in criminal justice, like it's something in, in history. No, it's not. Just a few months ago, Congress, the House passed a bill to ban um, uh, flavors from cigarettes. Listen, I think smoking's gross. I think that it's very harmful. I understand from, uh, it from a, a health perspective, but menthol cigarettes in particular is what they're trying to get rid of. You know who smokes that? 80% of all black smoke oak menthols. And so what's going to happen when that is enforced at a local level? What do you think cops are going to do with that information? They're going to use it to get it in your pockets because that's what they've always done. And if people don't believe me, I'll prove it. Eric Gardner was selling Lucy cigarettes. When that Lucy cigarette law first passed in New York, it was designed solely as a health protective measure. And then cops took it and used it as a way to get in your pockets. When cops came to see Eric Gardner, excuse me, when cops showed up on scene, they were there because there was some fight breaking out. Eric Gardner was the best witness that those police officers could have talked to, but instead they wanted to get in his pockets. And that is what happened. And that's what happened in Ferguson. And it's going to happen. It keep happening unless we stand up and say, we are done with this. Stop messing with us. In the first section of the paper, um, you suggest that the only justifications for pretrial detention are a risk of flight or a fail of a risk of failing to appear. I think most people would be surprised to hear that you didn't include public safety, although we've talked about uh, some of the reasons above, given the furor that emerged, for instance, after bail reform in New York City and the New York State. It seems radical for you to say that. Was that intentional? No. Um we put radical in scare quotes. Our position is fully <laughs> logical, right? The idea is that going to jail is punishment. It's the worst, pun- worst punishment. It is akin to death. And our system of laws prescribes that people can only be punished if they have had, a f- they've been charged with an offense, um, that offense is adjudicated, and they've been found guilty. Only then can they be subject to punishment. We don't have anything to say in the paper about the amount of punishment or whether <laughs> jail would be appropriate punishment. You know, Arthur has written very compellingly about the ways in which our um, our, our institutions of incarceration are abominations and the like. You know, we're not getting into that, but it's very simple. You can only be punished until your offense has been adjudicated and therefore Um, It's very critical that we place a premium on the system's ability to ensure that um, a defendant, a charged defendant, is actually adjudicated, uh, has the offense adjudicated. Um, We believe, as we say later on in the paper, that there are all sorts of ways to ensure that a person shows up for their trial um, or their adjudicative process, right? Um, and we, but we did imagine that there could be very rare circumstances in which there was a serious risk that the person would flee a jurisdiction and not show up, or importantly, present a serious risk of harm to someone important to the adjudicative process, such as a witness or a juror or the judge 
and the like. And in that context, we imagine the possibility that that person would be held um, and confined before, uh, before adjudication, right? Um, but that would be very rare and that the prosecutor would have to make very specific findings um, or present very specific evidence to a judge who would make very specific findings about that. Um, but in no way did we think it was appropriate. It is appropriate for um, prior to adjudication for um, someone to be held merely on, you know, a, a, a claim that they may present a danger to the public. Lots of people present dangers to the public. I'm going to say something uh, pretty outrageous maybe for the, for you two here. We know that with as much information as many prosecutors have that boys between the ages of 16 and 18, you know, present a certain risk of danger to the public. And we don't just automatically go and, and put boys between the ages of 16 and 18 in jail. Yeah. I would also add that uh, our argument is constitutional. Um, we flat out believe that Cilero's, uh, uh, Salerno is wrong. Um, we do not. We do not think that if you look at the the body of the Constitution, that people should be held um, without being convicted. I just don't think it's legal of how we do it, and except for the very limited circumstance that Tracy just um, laid out. And I also think that it it makes us less safe. Um, right. Every single bail reform that we've seen up until recently, actually, uh, has always been premised on the idea that it's more humane, it's better. I mean, look at the Federal Bail um, Act. I mean, it, 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 it was designed to actually try to uh, get more people out of jail, but it also allowed prosecutors to hold people. For When I was a prosecutor, I was a federal prosecutor. All I had to say was, uh, he's dangerous, period. And I got an automatic five days. No questions asked. No questions asked. Just so I had to say, five, he's dangerous. And then I could uh, get him presumed detainable through um, a myriad of, of different avenues, which was, I mean, if your sentence can be 10 years or more, then you are presumed um, uh, to be detainable. You know how easy it is to get 10 years in the federal side? It's pretty damn easy. Uh, and, you know, just, uh, um, I don't want to, you know, presume one of your questions, but, you know, I'm, I, listen, I'm on the center right. My job is to, uh, influence the center right. And you can imagine the way that this paper hit with some of um, <laughs> my friends and people who read my stuff, it, 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 you know, caused kind of a splash. And the thing that I kept hearing is, well, what about Ted Bundy? What about Jeffrey Dahmer? Are you saying that they shouldn't be detained? And I absolutely think that is such an intellectually dishonest question. Of, of course, Ted Bundy would have, would have been detained, but not because we are cutting into our principles is because Ted Bundy was a flight risk. And right. it, it was absolutely proven he was a flight risk. How would we know? Because the guy kept escaping from jail. Yeah, we um, often we often refer to that as the Hannibal Lecter problem in, in criminal justice reform work, too. Just this notion right. that you should always judge reform by the, the most extreme possible example is... Uh, I think pretty pretty problematic too. Um, so two of the prosecutors do their job. We prefer rather than pointing to Ted Bundy, who even under our uh, under what we wrote uh, in the four corners of what we wrote, he would have been held no problem. Um, we prefer to point to you know, the people in Brooklyn who spent right. you know two years in jail without ever having their cases. <laughs> Um, adjudicated and being subject to solitary confinement and 
um, all other sorts of horrors. Those are the people that we should be thinking about because that's what happens. The, the fear of letting Ted Bundy out is leading hundreds of thousands of folks to be incarcerated before their exactly. trial. Yeah, I tell this story all the time of when I was first incarcerated being, uh, I answered one of the questions wrong and got moved to mental health. Basically, I said I was depressed because I'd been arrested, which I was. And uh, next thing I knew, I was in the mental health wing and I was next to a guy who'd been in the mental health wing for over a year and had serious mental health problems. And, you know, he was waiting for his trial and had basically been in solitary for over a year. And uh, that's, I agree with you, that's who I think of whenever I think of pretrial detention. I don't think of, you know, myself who bailed out or many of the other folks. Um, so two yeah, of the- and, 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 and again, it doesn't make us safer. It doesn't make us safer. We actually have really deep data that shows that holding someone in trial creates a way, uh, it, it, it creates a lane for them to jump into where more crime is likely. Because why? Because they lose their job, they they lose their family, yada yada yada. Why why are we surprised that it it creates an environment where more crime is possible? It doesn't make us any safer, and that is something that people like to gloss over when they talk about this this topic. Yeah, you know, I mean, in that case, I mean, it certainly is. I asked his therapist at the time, you know, how does this make someone with mental health problems any better? <laughs> and uh, you know, did, didn't have a very good answer to that. So. Uh, one of the points that you make in the paper is that the presumption of innocence uh, prevents mob rule. And I was wondering if you all could explain that a little bit more. Um, oh yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, what I'm talking about when I, when I say that is specifically that, um, you know, our justice system, I, th- I just said it, you know, prosecutors need to work for their, their paycheck. Prosecutors need, if, if they truly believe that someone is a flight risk or let's be pragmatic right? Let's jump out of our paper for a second and have a pragmatic um, argument about the realities of, of today's justice system, where, you know, it's going to be very hard to pass legislation um, to, to create the world that we've created on paper. Even in that case, it is, we should be ensuring that prosecutors through articulable facts, through a, a true fact finding, um, determine whether someone's going to be held in pretrial detention. And what has happened is that the mob, um, the people are, are, are again terrified of you know the the the, the career um, super predator that we created these rules that basically just um, the presumption is you're probably dangerous um, and we know that people are are picked. I mean, listen, probable cause is the standard for uh, arresting someone. Probable cause is not supposed to be the standard of prison. And just because you call jail not prison doesn't mean it isn't prison. In right. fact, most people who've been most people that have been to both will tell you that jail is a lot worse. Oh, that's definitely true. Jail was definitely worse. I, I agree with that. Um so, you know, uh yeah, I often like to ask about uh you know, I or, or talk about uh you know, the notion that the, you know, we hear all these people on talking heads all the time talking about, uh, the whole idea of the rule of law. And to me, I always looked at the rule of law or what made our system unique was that it didn't just limit the powers of the, the power of the people or put laws 
uh, regulating what people could do. It also put regulations on the state. And you talk about the disparity in power between the people of the state. And that's the area. Uh, I think way too often the talking heads just assume the rule of law means don't break the law. You know? And so I was wondering if you all, since you all talk about kind of the disparity between uh, the power uh, in power between people and the state, that this was somewhere that I thought maybe we could uh, flush out a little bit more. I'll go first. And I know that Arthur has some very specific thoughts ab- about that too, because, you know, I think that plays to on his libertarian strings, um, <laughs> but well, I'm a civil you know, libertarian, I, so we, we we're, okay. we're, we're, we're related, <laughs> but <laughs> back to what I was saying before about, you know, logic and the rules. Like people shouldn't be punished until there is a process through which we, the people, have participated and we make a decision um, through a process designed by law that someone has broken a rule and therefore uh, should uh, be punished. And those processes are not just about ensuring that uh, citizens, as you mentioned, obey those rules, but it also ensures that the government doesn't overreach in making decisions or imposing consequences on people, that they have to follow processes. And when a prosecutor can go before a judge, as Arthur just said, and say something like, he's dangerous, and then someone is suddenly um, punished by being detained and thrown into jail, that's not consistent with the rule of law. That's not requiring that prosecutor to actually present evidence, and it's not requiring the judge to actually deliberate. And it's not consistent with all parties' supposed commitment to processes that ensure that a person is deemed innocent um, until proven guilty. So, and another part of the paper, you know, where we're talking about these, you know, this that 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 process presumes that the uh, the person who's charged has a lawyer, a special friend to help them navigate through this process in a way that's fair. But of course, if that person is detained prior to trial, they have less opportunity to confer with their lawyer. That gives the government more of an advantage. And it means that the person is, is less likely to be able to put on a good case and will spend even more time at trial. Um, and you know, we, we also make an argument about the fact that if, if people take up our idea that prosecutors, but in particular judges, are going to have to work harder, you know, that they need to take seriously the fact that they are depriving a citizen of his or her liberty. Um, and that's on them. <laughs> and they have to, a serious obligation to uh, take that deprivation um, uh, to heart before imposing it. Yeah, I, I would just add that individuals that argue um, that the rule of law means strict um, observance to law and order are wrong. And they're, they're wrong historically and they're wrong um, um, through the way that it's supposed to be applied in American jurisprudence. The term, you know, is, is a, it's a Greek idea and it comes from the concept that the government is subordinate to the law. And really, the ends of the system should serve upholding the larger goals of uh, human and civil rights. And so when you use the term rule of law to talk about 
um, law and order, you are incorrect and you should um, do some reading in Roman and Greek history because that is not what it was supposed to be. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, we kind of went through uh, probably right about the time I saw Arthur at CPAC this year, uh, a huge debate over pretrial detention in the state of New York. Uh, first in implementing reforms that precluded dangerousness and then rolling back some of those reforms. In in your opinion, uh, what did New York, if anything, get right and what did they get wrong? Tracy, do you uh, want to start or do you want me to start? You know, if, if you know more of the specifics, my understanding of what New York did right was to to make the kind of argument that we were making, which is there's a presumption against um, detention um, for, for dangerousness. That was my understanding. So um, yeah. you might have more details about what happened later than I do, Arthur. The only problem, the only problem that I have with what happened in New York is um, it, it, it had nothing to do with the actual policy per se or the law. It is the way that the law was enacted on a political law made just quite frankly made my job a lot harder because I would go to different states um, and because it was kind of rammed through um, uh, and people on the right did not feel like they had any type of voice and quite frankly maybe they shouldn't have had a voice um, but it made other jurisdictions that I was working in harder to work in and that is truly the only real issue that I have um, with it. And my big um, issue that I have with any of these types of conversations is the solutions that people come up with are, are just kind of ridiculous. If, if New York is not working exactly the way that people hoped it, it would, then tweak it. Tweak right. it. You don't need to tear down. Um, first of all, the people who have been screaming that you know we're, we're letting murderers um, on the streets um, started screaming that before the law was even implemented. So uh, calm down, eat your Cheerios, and let's let's wait a second. Um, and then even after the fact, if you don't like the results, then tweak the results. Um, I, I, I get impatient with people who 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 talk about something not working before anybody knows if it's working. Um, I mean, come on. Yeah, that well, was and then, a huge problem. And, and, and then there's always the the comparison of, you know, compared to what? I mean, you know, as right. academics, when we think about errors, you know, people tend to focus on the one kind of error that they see, right? Which is the person, you know, who maybe got out and did something, whatever it is. Um, but without thinking about the tens of hundreds, thousands of people um, who were also mistakes, those are mistakes. Right, because those people too would have been held pre-trial, and we know um, that those people didn't do anything. So, since when is it that we're going to focus on? I, I, I have a hard time understanding how people value liberty, honestly, yeah. if they're willing to sacrifice so many lives, so many lives for yep. the you know one or two people to which people pointed. But I could also point to people. How do I think about that problem? <laughs> you know, people are going to commit offenses in the world. Yes, we know that. True. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like uh, during the debate, uh, there was a lot of collusion. And we talked a little bit about fear earlier between the press and law enforcement. And I assume Arthur knows a bit about this. In the current yeah. environment, uh, what are your thoughts about kind of the 
relationship between the press and the police as it relates to pretrial incarceration and the presumption of liberty? Well, I do know that, um, you know, that they kind of feed each other. Um, they need each other in many ways. Uh, so <laughs> we saw this ex explosion um, in law enforcement um, through, uh, you know, the Clinton years and in uh, even before that. And much of what fed that was kind of fear mongering. Did crime um, go up in the United States? It did. But when we actually, when the dust settled and we saw what was the drivers of, of crime, it wasn't um, exactly what we thought it was. There was a lot, it was a lot more nuanced. But the problem is in the, in the media, uh, nobody, nobody wants to do nuance. Even, po I mean, your podcast is an hour plus um, long. Most people aren't, you know, want to do 10 second clips. Um, mm -hmm. Listen, I'll tell you one thing. Every single time that I know something personally that I see reported in the news, it's always wrong by a little bit. Sometimes a lot, sometimes just a little bit, but it's always off. And that gives me great pause. Did you have anything to add, Tracy? I don't, actually. Um, you know, I find it be perplexing. Well, this will probably get into an, another conversation, but <laughs> you know the ways in which the expansion of the system, those who work in the system are advocating for. I find that interesting um, because, on the one hand, it makes logical sense. Okay, you just want your, you know, your your squad, your team to be as big as possible. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of ways in which it doesn't make sense, given the ways in which people often complain about the kind of job that they're doing. And so you would think that um, as they make those kinds of arguments and sort of reflect on it, those issues about just the kind of job <laughs> that they're doing, um, that that might actually align them a bit better with some of those on the quote unquote reform side. But you, you don't see it as, much, as often as you, know, you might expect as a logical matter. So I guess we get to the, the, the crux of the matter. If we were to start, so as they say, from square one, how would we redesign our pretrial system? Well, um, so, <laughs> I'm going to crack I my mean, knuckles. Uh, go ahead, Tracy. No, no, no. I was going to say, well, there's square one and there's now, right? I mean, um, so, it, you know, this is one of, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed writing this piece with Arthur was that unlike some of the things that we sit around our square one table talking about that are really difficult and require reimagining, I personally, I'm not sure what Arthur thinks because we've never talked about this aspect of what I'm going to say, but I don't really think that what we proposed is that hard to do. I mean, it might be politically hard, but all of the apparatus for doing it is actually there. And in fact, you know, COVID gave us an opportunity to demonstrate sure. all the ways in which we can do it now and are doing it now. So, you know, our square one in this case is very clear. You know, there's a presumption of innocence that we're going to protect with a presumption of liberty. And we're going to ask all of the institutional players to adapt what they do right now and just take it seriously. I mean, it doesn't, I, I maybe I, I know I'm making it seem a little bit easier than it is, but in a lot of ways, it's really not that hard. Yeah, when, and I think yeah, I think when you 
when you boil down, um, you know, what we're actually saying, and I think that, um, listen, we, we were purpose, you know, we, we picked the title on purpose. Um, but when you actually boil down what we're doing, we're not trying to burn anything to the ground. What we're trying to say is we need to go back to what these words actually mean. And what these words mean is as an American um, citizen, or excuse me, as someone just in this country, uh, scratch that, as someone who was in this country, um, there are certain things that we have declared are God-given rights. And one of those is the presumption of innocence. So if we could just uh, take that literally um, and, and, and go from there, um, then I will, I'll squabble with you over the finer details, but we have to agree first and foremost that that means thing. Um, and unfortunately it doesn't. So I have two answers as well. You know, I have that answer. And I think pragmatically, um, the data actually tells us that we're right, that we're not creating a more safe um, environment. And so I ask, you know, uh, you know, whenever I start talking about these, these issues, like I ask, does it promote human dignity? Nope. Does it make us um, more safe? Nope. Does it, um, uh, you know, are we being good stewards with ta our tax um, dollars? Nope. nope. And ultimately, I always say, like, are we a great nation? I think we are. But one thing for sure, we, we're not exemplifying that through the way we, 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 we handle pretrial in, in this country. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. I would add just one more, which is not one of Arthur's principles, but it's important to this conversation. Do we know how to do this? Yep, yep. we do. I mean, it's not, in, in contrast to some of our conversations at the outset about, you know, the um, reimagining policing, where we understand and know how to do certain parts of it, but, you know, certain parts of it will be totally brand new because we haven't ever really sure. had a commitment. Here, we know how to do this. We know how to have a hearing <laughs> where prosecutors present evidence of um, extreme flight risk and so on. We yeah. know how to do that. It's not that hard. And we're so intellectually dishonest about some of this stuff. Like when Tracy and I were presenting this paper to some of our peers, something, you know, one of the suggestions that we, we, we make is, you know, if, if mental health is a huge driver of um, individuals that, that may or may not be, um, need to be contained in some way, then maybe we should, you know, start having a more robust conversation about that. And the, and the response, instead of being like, yeah, let's, let's have a more response conversation. The response is, well, that's just too hard. We can't have more mental health. And I was like, why not? I mean, if, if you want to have a conversation about defunding the police, that's the conversation that you should have. Is if, if, if mental health is this enormous driver to violent interactions with police, then let's take some of that money and put it towards uh, mental health services. Um, but, you know, the fact that that is like, people act like, I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're asking to, to, to build the pyramids in six minutes. I mean, no. That's just like good policy. Yeah, and then one more thing. I know we're piling off on Joshua, but um, you know, let's go back to the principle that we're talking about. You know, you really want to say to somebody who's been charged with a crime, um, you know, that we're going to allow a, a, a judge to make a decision to incarcerate you merely because the prosecutor says, well, there's probable cause to believe that this person broke into that person's house. So they're dangerous. So that, that we have enough evidence to deprive them of their liberty. 
you know, rather than making a real showing, do we honestly want to say to that person, it's just too hard for us to have a serious commitment to the presumption of liberty, or to the presumption of innocence? Really? That's too hard? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of times their answer is yes, but <laughs> I disagree. I mean, I agree they, with you. Right. But then they have to be able to say that, right? And not yeah. just say it to Arthur and me behind closed doors, you know, then say to the person, I know we said that <laughs> there's a presumption <laughs> of innocence, but really it's just too hard for us to really mean it. So, okay. Right. Let's so keep going now. This is the Decarceration Nation podcast, and this year I've been asking my guests uh, for any ideas they have outside of what we were talking about on how we could best decarcerate America. Do you all have any other ideas aside from stop, you know, detaining a bunch of people on dangerousness? Not that that's a bad one. That's a good one. <laughs> um, well, we have all kinds of ideas, right? I mean, you know, I think Arthur's already mentioned a couple of them, which I think are important, which is, you know, people can't be incarcerated unless there is legal authorization for them to be in the system in the first place. So, you know, um, I've actually been talking a lot about this in, in terms of the, of the policing issue, but you know, legislatures can play a much more robust role in either not enacting these ordinances or laws in the first place, but um, can actually specify whether they are um, offenses for which if a person is found guilty, they are subject to any kind of incarceration or forcible arrest and the like, right? You know, like nobody goes to jail for parking tickets. Most of these things be like parking tickets, right? Why are people involved in the system? And in our paper, we talk about the huge number of people who are detained prior to adjudication who have um, committed misdemeanors, right? Um, why are those people part of this, that part of the system? It doesn't make sense. And that's a role that the legislature can play. So you know, that's one idea. Arthur? I, I'm going to use a, a word, uh, professionalism. Um, we need a new breed of professional cops and professional prosecutors in this country. And what I mean by that is, and I know people are going to listen to this and be like, oh my God, you don't think cops and prosecutors are professional. And, and actually, no. If you look at what the word professional means, not really. They're more like you know plumbers. Um, they have skills and they apply those skills um, in a very set way. And that is not what we need in the justice system. Um, uh, you know, the way that we measure success in policing, even though most of the quota systems have been officially brought down, it, it's still the cops that are promoted are the cops with the most arrests. When I was a prosecutor, we counted how many trials we had. That means it's like the, the badge of honor. Um, even though we know that how many trials you do has nothing to do with how good of a prosecutor you are. In fact, it might be a sign of, of being a bad prosecutor. Um, so we need a different breed. I never one time in my entire time as a police officer um, ever thought about the ramifications past the moment that individual was booked, ever. I never thought about what that person had going on at home. I had, there was a crime, I could prove it through probable cause, um, and I locked him up and I put him away. I never thought about it. I never thought about myself as being a professional. When I was a prosecutor, I never went to a prison one time, ever. And I've worked at DOJ for nine years. And I think that, you know, treating these uh, um, these jobs 
And ensuring that we have professional development is something that would go a long way. Um, and we call things professional development that aren't. I mean, police, the vast majority of police training is on ensuring your shot group is tight, not on actual developing the profession of policing. When it comes to prosecutors, you know, when I was a, I was a federal prosecutor, we would go to South Carolina a couple times a year. We would take classes, but it was always skills. Very, very seldomly do we see classes on how to be a better prosecutor, how to actually, you know, pursue justice in a real and meaningful way. Um, that is what I think we need in this country, and I actually think that we could do it because we we, we have actually done it in other um, institutions. We can do it in this one. I always ask uh, the same last question. I'm a little, I have a little trepidation this time because I, I just on my own list, there were 40 questions that I didn't ask. Uh, but what did I mess up? What questions should I have asked but did not? Mm. How? I have no idea. I think you did a great job. And I, <laughs> oh, I, I, I did, I <laughs> did too. Great. I mean, I, I, I was trying to think of one uh, way of maybe bringing in you know, the concern about dangerousness. But honestly, I, I think we really, I think we really hit that. You asked questions that allowed us to get at that in different directions. So um, I feel good about what we said. Well, I'm always thrilled yeah. to hear that. <laughs> like I said, I had a bunch of questions that I didn't get to. So um, I just want to thank you both so much for such an interesting discussion and for being my guests on the podcast today. Thanks yeah. for having us. I really enjoyed talking to both of you about this. Yeah, it was such an honor. I'm uh, so tickled pink. Um, it's great. Well, thanks again, and I hope to talk to both of you again sometime soon. Yes, sir. Me too. I'll be Bye, listening Tracy. in. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> and now, my take. A little over one year ago, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division had the following to say about Alabama's Department of Corrections. There is reasonable cause to believe that the Alabama Department of Corrections has violated and is continuing to violate the Eighth Amendment rights of prisoners housed in men's prisons by failing to protect them from prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence, prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner sexual abuse, and by failing to provide safe conditions. The violations are severe systemic, and exacerbated by serious deficiencies in staffing and supervision, overcrowding, ineffective housing, and classification protocols, inadequate in incident reporting, inability to control the flow of contraband into and within the prisons, including illegal drugs and weapons, ineffective prison management and training, insufficient maintenance and cleaning of facilities, the use of segregation and solitary confinement to both punish and protect victims of violence and or sexual abuse, and a high level of violence that is too common, cruel, of an unusual nature, and pervasive. Our investigation revealed that an excessive amount of violence, sexual abuse, and prisoner deaths occur within Alabama's prisons on a regular basis. Two days ago, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division put out a second report, which concluded a few things. First, almost none of the problems in the first report have been addressed by Alabama or by its governor, Kay Ivey. From the report, the severe levels of overcrowding and understaffing contribute to the systemic use of excessive force. Since we issued our April 2019 notice letter, the overcrowding with Alabama prisons has actually increased. In addition, and as we noted in our April 2019 notice letter, ADOC is critically understaffed and even now 
ADOC remains critically understaffed. Many of Alabama's prisons have a staffing rate below 50%, and several facility staffing levels are well below that number. ADOC still needs to hire approximately 2,000 correctional officers to adequately staff its men's prisons. ADOC is aware of the severe staffing deficiency, yet has not taken meaningful steps or other emergency measures to address the understaffing. Second, that correctional officers in the Alabama Department of Corrections routinely use excessive force against people incarcerated in in their prisons. Again, from the report. Uses of excessive force in Alabama prisons are common. All too often, correctional officers use force in the absence of physical threat while making no effort to de-escalate tense situations. Such uses of force heighten tensions in already violent and overcrowded prisons. Failing to de-escalate these situations properly endangers the safety of prisoners and staff. Correctional officers also use force as a form of retribution and for the sole purpose of inflicting pain. Such uses of force violate the Eighth Amendment. This is not okay. It is not okay that KIV and the Alabama legislature has done nothing to fix these deep and systemic problems, so obvious that even Bill Barr's Department of Justice has called them out. It is not okay that officers routinely use excessive force and chemical agents against our brothers and sisters in prison. And it is not okay that this is not a bigger story. All of us need to speak out and bring attention to the plight of our brothers and sisters in Alabama. Human beings should be treated with dignity. They should be afforded their basic human and constitutional rights, and they should not be constant to subject cruel. They should not be constantly subject to cruel and unusual punishment. They should not be constantly subject to cruel and unusual punishment. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. All proceeds used to go to supporting our volunteer used to go to supporting our volunteers, but we are losing our last volunteer at the end of the month, so proceeds will go to paying for producing and promoting the podcast. I want to thank our newest supporters on Patreon, Liz, Bill, O, and Tawana. Thanks so much for becoming part of our community on Patreon. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to the website and give us a one-time donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and, at least for a while longer, to Kate Summers, who is running our website and helping with our Instagram and Facebook pages. Make sure to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the DC. Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.